Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Join Mason and Jake each week as they try new wines and discover how much government is in your drink. Welcome to another rousing episode of Tasting Anarchy. I am your host, Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I'm joined by... Mason Joseph. And today we have a an interesting show. I, I didn't do as much preparation as I normally do, but I did have uh, some some interesting wines this week that I wanted to kind of touch on in particular. And I also wanted to revisit two topics that we've, you know, we've been kind of going in and out of over the last 10 or 15 episodes or so. I mean, there's stuff that Mm -hmm. that have been developing in the wine world that relate to how much government is in your drink. So exactly. And for Mm -hmm. those who care, you can like and follow the show on Facebook now Mm. since I, uh, figured things out <laughs> yeah yeah so it only took us nearly 100 episodes <laughs> that's right we're getting we're actually getting real close to 100 episodes and mm-hmm. i'm hoping that we'll have some special guests not necessarily for episode 100 although we may have a special guest for episode 100 but because there's 52 weeks in a year i figured the two-week anniversary would be episode 104 mm-hmm. and we could do our two-year celebration on episode 104 i like it yeah we'll be a little bit different than everybody else so yeah uh, so, Mason, do you want to go ahead and uh, go over what you're sipping on this week? Because it seems to have a familiar yeah. name to me. Yeah, it should have a familiar name. So, it is Chateau Athors Castilian Coast de Bordeaux 2014. Uh, it's 13% ABV. It's And what's really cool about this one, I don't know if you noticed it mm-hmm. um, previously, it actually lists the, the grape varietal on it. So it's 80% Merlot, 15% Cab Sauv, and 5% Cab Franc. Um, the reason... I Jacob, did you actually review this one on the show? Not with you. I reviewed this one on an episode of Quirk and Java, which we, That's right. we replayed. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, this is... Um, Jacob recommended this... Uh, wine to me because I was looking to get a wine for one of my neighbors for her birthday. Then I ended up finding out some more fun present instead uh, that'll help her business. Um, and so I ended up picking this one up for my personal enjoyment and I've been enjoying it pretty much since. Well, it is a um, super garnet colored. Is, I mean, yeah, it's like that's the, what like I would the, call it. Like yeah. the brick, brick red kind of. Yeah, br- I mean, darker than that to me, but okay. like it might just be the the light in my house at the moment. Um, to me, it's got a good red wine flavor. I've had each glass open for a really long time. That if the two that I've had, it's kind of has a spicy, peppery finish to me, which I really like. Um, and it was like twenty bucks. It's a great French wine. Like if you think French wine, and you you know, obviously, if you're drinking like. Zinfandel or something like that. This is not going to be along the same lines, but because it's a blend, it's got, you know, notes of the Merlot and notes of the Cab and notes of the Franc. I mean, you hit it on the head with this recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. I I thought this was a very good wine and a really, really good value. This is like 20 miles away from St. Emilion, which you're going to, when you get a wine from there, you're paying a lot for the prestige of the St. Emilion region, and it's very expensive, or can be very expensive usually. Now, uh, Cote de Bordeaux is a – actually, you, Mason, and I covered this uh, many episodes ago where there was four or five wine regions in Bordeaux that decided to join. Even though they're not contiguous, 
they decided to go ahead and join for marketing purposes. Mm-hmm. And and this particular region, which used to be Castilleon, now it's Cote de Bordeaux, but they still put Castilleon on there so you, you know what it is. Um, they were known for making St. Emilion-style wines, which is the Merlot-heavy uh, left bank, or I'm sorry, right bank. Right bank is the Merlot-heavy. The right bank wines where they're a little bit smoother. Uh, they, they do often have a little bit more fruitiness to them. And uh, mm-hmm. for, especially for European wines, uh, and they went ahead and joined the this I guess conglomerate, this uh, Cote de Bordeaux, and now they're now they're producing and marketing under that. And you can still get really really good values from the wines that are from these this region, but you do have to be sort of careful because there's right and left bank uh, regions that are in the same. Uh, classification or new AVA or mm-hmm. actually it's not an AVA for them but uh, viticulture area for them and um, so it's kind of tricky to figure out what exactly you're getting from it but this if you if you like Saint Emilion uh, which is like a smoother red usually uh, very Merlot heavy and don't want to pay the high price for Saint Emilion this is something that you can go with from the Castilleon region now Cote de Bordeaux and it's going to really not pinch your wallet like how much did you pay for this mason it was like 20 bucks so 20 bucks yeah good price if you i know they have this at total wine um if you buy six you get uh 10 off i think so you get two dollars off uh not not necessarily six of this particular one but if you get six of the winery direct wines and i think this is one of them it uh, is a winery direct wine okay yeah so you get you get a a discount it's just it's a really I'm glad that you like it because I was so impressed by this wine. I, I took I got this because I did that um, budget friendly wines from Bordeaux or from France with uh, mm-hmm. Elizabeth from Wine for Normal People, and this is one of the ones I got, and it was just it was so inexpensive and so good. So if, while it lasts, everybody, you know, go out and and get some Cote de Bordeaux because it's going to increase in price once people figure out what it is. Yeah, and it, and if it doesn't. They're a bunch of idiots. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but I mean that would be good. So uh, what yeah. what do you think about the the taste? I mean, what like was it, what did you detect in it? Because I I bet you I can pull up my notes and we can kind of compare. So that's the thing is like, you know, my taste isn't the strongest. Yeah. So I'm trying to I'm trying to pick up more, but really for me, like all I'm really getting is like the spice on it. Okay. And I'm not saying that's right. That's just what I'm getting a lot of heavy of. So I... I guess I don't have notes and, on this one. Yeah, and it's kind of drying out my mouth more than it had been. I mean, it. I'm really enjoying it. Good. So, Good. I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, so, yep. So, I mean, I guess that's it. If you guys want a budget-friendly French wine, that's the one to go for. It. That, what I, I think I recommended two, two to you from uh, Bordeaux. One was from one of the episodes we did with Jackson Blood and, mm-hmm. and then this one which is if you guys just go back and look at the cor- uh, the, the Cork and Java episode I did uh, with Billy you'll you'll be able to hear my review on this one because it is it is outstanding and, and I think a great price if I you know I think actually you even get 20% off if you buy 12 I've, I've, I've thought about going back and getting this one just to kind of keep to the side because it's very drinkable. It reminds me a lot of that Dante, Dante or uh, Donati, Donati, mm-hmm. the one we did with Bird, 
where although the, the one we did with Bird is much more um, left bank style, so it's more tannic and more cab sob heavy, but mm-hmm. um, sort of along the same lines, it's just super drinkable. It's just a, yeah, it's just a drinkable wine. It's just very good. It is, yeah. It, it's one of those things where like. I was so unpre- like I knew it was going to be a good wine since you suggested I spend money on it, mm-hmm. um, but it's so much different than I was expecting, um, and just in how pleasant and enjoyable it is. You know, yeah. like I don't know how to describe it better than that, but yeah, um, yeah, it it has been like a like just so pleasant. Yeah, and that's kind of that's sort of. When, because you know, I tend to like the more tannic, more like aggressive wines when it mm-hmm. when it comes to reds. And lately, I've been getting much more into like the merlot, merlots, and and merlot blends and things like that. And, and actually, I've always liked pinot noir, but I do tend I do tend to like the more aggressive pinot noirs. Um, but this one, like I said, it's very drinkable. It's I can see it's it's a. A relaxing wine, I guess. It's 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 mm-hmm. easy to drink. It's very enjoyable. It's not so complex that you have to kind of sit and think about it. It's more of a. It's just enjoyable to drink. It's it's very good. It you don't. It's not super complex, but it's very it's very tasty. Yeah, it, it's one of those wines where like, I you really aren't going to be. Uh, I, I was going to say you're not going to be disappointed, but like that's kind of a dumb thing to say. Like, I can't recommend it more. Yeah, I would. Like, I would say if you if you like Merlots, but you want something a little bit more complex, this is this is a good mm-hmm. one to go for. It does have that old world taste too, so it is a little bit more minerally than like uh, New World wines, and a little less fruity, but it does, does still have that fruity taste, and um, and also has a lot of kind of the oak characteristics that you get from. Uh, well, that you get from an oak, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, like a little bit of that spiciness and a little kind of like a little bit of pepper flavor and and that sort of thing. It's it's it's, it's just a very interesting wine, very good and very easy. Yeah, and it has like so twelve months on oak. I mean, like it. I I'm drawing a blank. Right. Well, we'll go and get into yeah. mind stuff because speaking of yeah, easy exactly. drinking. I, mm-hmm. I actually have two Pinot Noirs this week, and I opened them both and tasted them both, and I was like, oh, this is very interesting because these are very different, and mm-hmm. so it might be fun to just kind of compare them on the episode. Uh, so yeah, I, exactly. I, and they're, they're very different price points as well. So mm-hmm. um, so the first one that I have is the cheaper one. This is Santa Barbara Vineyards Pinot Noir 2016. Uh, it's from Santa Barbara, California. It's uh, 13.5% ABV. You can hear my new puppy in the background squeaking that toy. Yeah, I thought your wife was like just doing something super crazy at first, but yeah. <laughs> no, um, he's, so he's trying to get Foxy to uh, he's trying play to get, with him. Yeah, to play with him, but Foxy's just kind of yeah. like staring at him. <laughs> now, I will go out of my way to point out first, good job on getting a uh, California Pinot, and especially one from Santa Barbara. Yeah, and actually this is very widely available at Total Wine. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was on sale uh, a couple of weeks ago when I went there to get some wines for one of the classes, and I went, oh, this is – I want to get this because of Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like I said, Santa Barbara uh, 2015, I paid fourteen seventy nine for it because I, bu- I always buy six bottles or 12 bottles when I go to Total Wine. I never buy, like, one. 
Um, so, <laughs> so you're not like me. Yeah, yeah, one. yeah. Well, I always, I always, because you know, I know I'm going to drink it, uh, and mm-hmm. I don't mind filling my rack. Although I've got 130 bottles of wine coming from Last Bottle Wines very soon, and I will not have <laughs> any room for new wines. But it's. It I, normally, I think we're going to have to buy you a storage shed. I know. I know. Climate controlled, <laughs> but uh, this is sixteen dollars a bottle normally, so a very fair price even when you don't buy six. Uh, the look of it is a is a very kind of vibrant ruby, but garnet on the edges. Mm-hmm. The smell very very jammy, very very smoky. Uh, well, I would say very jammy and slightly smoky, not really overly smoky. Um, taste is uh, jammy. A lot of blackberry notes. It does have that smoke. It's very smooth. Uh, it's not particularly acidic, which is kind of unusual for Pinot Noir, but uh, that is not necessarily missing. Now, Victoria tried this, and when she tasted it, she was like, ugh, this is way too acidic. So hmm. it may be my palate is different than hers, uh, but that well, was... we know that's That's true, true yeah, because that's what she said first. She was like, ugh, it's too sour. And I was like, oh, interesting. That, that that's, that's how you'd feel about it. Because that's not at all how I felt about this. I, I felt that this was a great wine for people who um, like sweet reds but have not quite graduated to dry reds yet. Or not even mm-hmm. graduated but have not really gone into it. This is very, very, very fruity. And the jamminess makes it kind of seem sweet even though it's not a sweet wine. It, mm-hmm. it, it is dry uh, but the fruitiness kind of makes it seem sweet. Uh, it's very inexpensive, very drinkable. I, I could definitely see getting this and bringing a bottle of it to a barbecue maybe or a group dinner or something like that. People will be impressed by it because it, it is it is good. It's also Santa Barbara, which is a little bit unusual um, as far as yeah, wines it's go very for anybody unusual. who knows wines. Um, yeah, yeah. So if But people who like uh, who like dry drier wines, um, they'll still like this because it is dry and that's kind of clear that it's dry. But people who maybe are a little less experienced and they like sweet reds, they might try this and go, oh, the fruitiness is what I was looking for, not necessarily the sweetness. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say this is this is a great wine to bring for people who are not particularly experienced with wines. Um, for people who are experienced with wines, it's, it's, a, it's a good wine for a good price. So um, I would give this, you know, if we were doing like the star system, like uh, I'd probably give this like three and a half stars out of five. Uh, it, it's it's good. It's not the greatest Pinot Noir I've ever had, but it, it's definitely mm-hmm. good. Uh, the next one that I have is uh, from uh, Groucho Cellars uh, Pinot Noir. It's from Dundee Hill, Oregon. It's uh, thirteen. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's thirteen point seven percent ABV. Normally retails for thirty two dollars a bottle. I got it for twenty on Last Bottle Wines. So this was oh, nice. this is one of the Last Bottle Wines that I got in the last marathon sale. And I and think it actually might be you've... my last bottle. Oh, okay. What's that? Uh, no, no, no. no. You, 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 you were answering some of the questions I was having. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think this is actually my last bottle of that Marathon wine. Um, so uh, I probably had this for six months on the shelf, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. We'd have to go back and see when the last Marathon was. But I think, I think that's probably about accurate. Uh, I still have some of my last bottle wines, but I think that of the – because in the last marathon, I bought a lot of single bottles. This most recent marathon, I bought almost no single bottles. I almost always bought uh, two or four. So um, so this is a uh, – I, I kind of wish at this point that I had gotten more because this is a very, very good Pinot Noir. 
Um, mm-hmm. It is a transparent garnet. It's super light color. Really, really interesting. Really pretty. Uh, Smell-wise, dark fruit. It does have a minerally slateness. Now, this is one of the reasons why Oregon Pinot Noirs are so prized in the United States is that you don't usually get a lot of that mineraliness from uh, New World wines, but somehow Oregon is able to do that. Uh, it, it, whatever that it is with the terroir and the climate, this does impart kind of that uh, minerally flavor. So slate. Now, I borrowed the term slate from uh, from the way that people describe wines. I would actually describe this as gravel. So when you when you're like you know putting gravel down for like a pathway or something like that, it does it has a distinct mm-hmm. flavor. Or like a distinct smell. I was going to say, kind like, of I, I, I try not those. to eat the gravel, but <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. No, yeah. I, I know what you mean. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, you just you're out there. It's super dusty. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know exactly what you mean. Right. So, and and that's kind of in this. It's it's it's. I like it. It's it's appealing. It it kind of makes you think of that kind of thing. Um, taste wise, super acidic. Uh, which mm-hmm. is, I like the acidity in Pinot Noir. Uh, but I also that's one of the reasons why I like um, Sauvignon Blanc is I like acidic wines. Also, why I like the dry uh, Rieslings. The acidity I think is very good. Uh, this one also has a lot of black uh, blackberry, a lot of cherry. Um, most people would describe it as soil. I always describe it as dirt. Also has mm-hmm. dirt, but in a good way. It 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 tastes like it smells when you're like working in the soil, planting and stuff like that. So yeah, it tastes, got a nice, tastes like you like imagine a farm would. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's got it's got that. It's um, light bodied, which is it's a it's a nice light bodied. So like you know, like red wines a lot of times have uh, a very heavy body, which a lot of people don't like. One of the things that's nice about Pinot Noir is it is light bodied. So people who like light bodied wines, Pinot Noir goes very well with that. Almost no tannins. Incredibly, incredibly smooth. Uh, the conclusion I have on this one is that this is an incredibly complex wine. I'm getting more out of it every sip. I poured myself a second glass of this while we did the show. Um, it's incredibly complex. I think this is a really, really good wine for people who like Pinot Noir or for people who are going to like a dinner party or something like that for people who like Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. For regular people, I think they'll like it still, but it's going to be – I think a lot of the nuance of this is going to be lost on – uh, regular drinkers. Now, to kind of contrast that, Victoria had a sip of this, and Victoria is not a big wine drinker. This one she actually liked. It, it wasn't. Huh. It wasn't for her, um, but she did think it was. It was very good looking, and she or good tasting, and she thought it was comparable to um, some of the flavors in Cahor, mm. which I thought was interesting. So uh, I don't get any of that. Uh, there is certain things that I think are reminiscent of Cahor, but that's just sort of reminiscent of red wine in general to me. And mm-hmm. um, But really great value at $20, even $32 a bottle, which I think you would still get this. This is the 2014. Uh, I think you would still get this online for about 32 bucks. If you're interested in Pinot Noirs, I think that this is a great Pinot Noir to get. It, it's definitely very, very good. Both, both of these are very good, but I would say that the uh, Groucho Cellars Pinot Noir 2014 definitely takes the cake out of the two. Uh, but I, I, I did kind of want to showcase these because they are so different. And even though they are very different regions, like Oregon's not that far away from California, and Dundee Hill is not super, super far away either. And it's it's interesting to see how much, particularly Pinot Noir. You know, a lot of people dis, uh, describe Pinot Noir as a ghost, 
because it ta- mm-hmm. it takes on the flavor of its terroir more than most other, uh, particularly what red wine. Um, and Pinot Noir definitely is it showcases terroir in both these cases. Santa Barbara, it packs a fruit punch. Now this is like a little bit of a cheaper one, so you might be getting something different. Um, but the Groucho one definitely a, a high class, uh, definitely showcasing the terroir of Oregon. Uh, particularly Dundee Hill, which is is even more unique than that. This Dundee Hill one, if I was to give this a rating for the Pinot Noirs, and I've had a lot of Pinot Noirs, um, I would give this like a four point five out of five stars. It's it's very good. Good, good. All right. Uh, so I guess that's the conclusion of our wine reviews. You want to get into mm-hmm. topics? Yeah. So first, uh, real quick. Um, Hey, Billy, how's it going? Um, so he'll understand what that means if he does listen to this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so let's get to articles. Okay. All right. Well, um, so the first article I have, so I think we've discussed this a little bit. Um, I subscribe to uh, Wine Spectator magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had an interesting article in this. And it's something that we've covered before, and I kind of wanted to revisit it because this had a take in it that I thought was uh, not unique, but it was something that a lot of people haven't covered yet. And it it sort of mirrors my hesitation of this decision. Mm-hmm. So let me grab the article real quick. Sure. Uh, it's just behind me. But uh, yep. this is... I've got a little bit of a note on this, but it's a Supreme Court uh, shakes up wine law, and it's out of uh, Wine Spectator uh, from the September 30th edition. It's by Emma Balter, and this is just basically – it's covering that Supreme Court decision that we've discussed before, which is – it's uh, Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retail Association versus Russell F. Thomas. So this originally – I'll give a little bit of background on this to kind of refresh everybody's memory because I'm sure that not everybody remembers or possibly this is their first episode. So recently, the Supreme Court ruled on a on this particular case and it was that Tennessee requires a two-year residency um, restriction for anybody who wants to open up a wine retail location in the state. Mm-hmm. And... This was uh, told by – it was – the federal court said that this was not allowed, and so they brought it up to the Supreme Court, and the Tennessee the Tennessee Wine Retailers Association believes that according to – I believe it's the 23rd Amendment. I could be getting that wrong, but I think it's the 23rd Amendment that is basically – it said, oh, 21st Amendment that says that um, states are basically allowed to do what they want to do with wine. Or, or with beer, mm-hmm. wine, liquor, all alcohol products in general. And and this came up because Total Wine, which is one of the retail locations that you and I shop at pretty frequently, um, mm-hmm. one of the things that they brought up, they wanted to open up a location there, and, and another group wanted to open up one, and I can't remember their name, but they wanted to open up locations there, and they were both stricken down because of the two-year requirement. And now Total Wine is a uh, it's a conglomerate. It's 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 owned by multiple people. It's so the the residency requirements don't really apply to them. And the other one, same thing. They they are not owned by a single person. They are owned by multiple people. But none of those people necessarily lived in Tennessee. So they brought this lawsuit up, and the court 
ultimately ruled in favor of Total Wine, saying mm-hmm. that that the uh, supremacy clause of the Constitution's uh, the Interstate Commerce Clause says that that the that they that this is an undue hardship on companies that exist outside of the state. So it's clearly protectionism is what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Now the part of this article, this is actually a very short article that I wanted to bring up. It brings up the other side of this. Now on the one hand, I I am I I like the idea that because this actually opens the door for wine shipping. So mm-hmm. uh, originally people could only ship. With with some exceptions, they they were only allowed to ship in certain states. So, like Texas, for example, has a deal where it's it's actually difficult to ship here because they have a lot of restrictions on external shipping into Texas. They allow internal mm-hmm. shipping, but they don't allow external shipping. And there's a lot of states that have that. This basically overturns a lot of those rules because they're saying that no, putting state like uh, interstate commerce restrictions is a federal government. You know, um, scope of authority. Whereas, yeah, the Constitution basically says that the states can't impact inter- intrastate commerce. Exactly. But the 21st Amendment says that the states are allowed to regulate alcohol. So, and, and actually, it says, let me read it real quick, because it says, um, here, let me pause for a second so I can look up the actual quote because it's it's interesting. Uh, so it's, it says the majority of opinion disagreed, saying that Section Two, are, uh, Section Two of the Twenty First Amendment, does not allow uh, every every discriminatory every discriminatory feature that the state may incorporate into a three tiered system. So this is actually striking down a three tiered system, but that's not what I wanted to read. I wanted to read the actual wording of the 21st Amendment, which is the argument for the Tennessee Wine and Spirit Retailer Association. Uh, Okay, yeah, so Section 2 of the 21st Amendment, which gives states wide latitude to structure their liquor laws in order to promote temperance and an orderly market. So apparently that's what has been established that the 21st Amendment means, and so the states are saying, no, we have the authority over this because the 21st Amendment has delegated alcohol to us. Now, on the other hand, this definitely is protectionism. They're putting in, mm-hmm. they're putting in a lot of restrictions that are making it so that it's very difficult to sell liquor and wine and beer in the state of Tennessee. But you've also got other states like Utah, for example, who has alcohol level restrictions. So uh, there, there's a lot of weird stuff, but Specifically, what I wanted to talk about was this quote from uh, the dissenting opinion. So this, the ruling was actually seven to two, and the dissent, the dissenting opinion was Neil Gorsuch and um, I believe it's Clarence Thomas. So the quote, mm-hmm. the quote from the article is: Justice Neil Gorsuch delivers the dissenting opinion, joined by Justice Clarence Thomas. So I was, yeah, it's just Justin Clarence Thomas arguing that the Supreme Court quote should not be in the business of imposing our own judge-made, quote, dominant commerce clause limitations on state power. And I do tend to agree with the Gorsuch decision on this, other than the fact that I want to be able to receive wine interstate. Um, And the reason is that the commerce clause can kind of mean anything the judges want it to mean. And we have Mm -hmm. historical precedents for this. Back during um, the Depression era, 
they, there was some rulings on wheat where there was a farmer who was just keeping the wheat. He wasn't selling it. He wasn't doing anything with it other than he was keeping it and using it for his own purposes. I think he was feeding it to his livestock or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court, or I think it was actually a federal court. I don't think it made it to the Supreme Court, ruled that by withholding wheat from the market, he was affecting the price of wheat on the market and that he was required to sell it at market value. And I'm a little bit concerned with these types of rulings and this one in particular as well in the wine industry because they can really basically say anything they want is affecting interstate commerce. There is, there's a higher demand, let's say, for a higher alcohol wine. So maybe they could come in and they could say, well, by Oregon producing lower alcohol Pinot Noirs, they're impacting the market because mm-hmm. they're taking away sales from, let's say, California or Texas. Texas makes higher alcohol wine because it's hotter here. Uh, they're taking away market share from Texas because they're producing a product that fits a niche market or a niche market. And they could say, this is interstate commerce clause. And so I, this is – you and I have talked about this a little bit before. I'm a little bit of two minds on this. This is it's, – it's a little bit complicated situation. I don't think there should be – uh, rules when it comes to re- when it comes to trade, but at the same time, this is not a federal government purview. And just because they're allowing more free trade in this one area, doesn't mean that the application of this law is beneficial across the board. Correct. Yeah, that's the. This is the thing that like frustrates me with the the idea that like in a narrow scope decision, one state can't tell. It's residents, you can't import something or you can't uh, – other citizens, others – you know, it's like in a – like narrowly applied, this is a good decision. Yeah. But that's not how it's going to be applied. It's yeah. going to be applied to like further push the ability of the the federal purview over things that don't really have anything to do with them. Yeah. Like – there's no no need for them to interfere with what's going on here. Mm-hmm. So, and I yeah, agree. I totally agree. It's 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 like nice to see them saying like, oh yes, like you shouldn't be able to stop people from you know committing you know doing commerce, but it's also saying like, yeah, we're going to interfere with commerce by even right doing exactly. a ruling on this. That's yeah, and, and I'm going to. I'm probably going to end up showing up to the uh, Texas legislature in in two years because the Texas legislature only meets every two years, and and ask them to pass legislation that allows interstate commerce for wine. Because right now, Texas is very strict on that. And mm-hmm. and I may even cite this and say like, look, this is the ruling. Why don't you guys get out ahead of this? This is going to be good for both of us. And that's that's going to be my argument. I'm going to try to speak to them. About it, and I and I think that that's the best way to go about it is instead of going and trying to get the federal government to impose some sort of re- regulation on you, because the federal government always gets out of hand, and so do the state governments. But at least on the state level, you have a little bit more control because it's a smaller scale, and mm-hmm. so uh, I would encourage everybody who is in a state that has a lot of restrictions on wine shipping to go to your legislature, write to your representative or whatever in the state and try to get them to ease up on the restrictions. Uh, and you could you could use that this Supreme Court decision as a citation on it. You don't want the federal government coming in and, and imposing their regulation because it's always going to include additional stuff that you don't 
asked for. So get ahead of it and keep the federal government out of your state. But at the same time, as much as I like the ramifications of this because I'll be able to order wine from a lot of places that I wanted to order wine from that I have not been allowed to, Mm-hmm. I really think this is a danger. It's kind of a dangerous precedence. Uh, I think that That's they're going to end up slip, citing yeah. this. Yeah, I think they're going to end up citing this for future decisions, and they're going to be future decisions that we don't like. And um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens on that. I, I think. It, I think it's going to be. It's going to be interesting. So. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be surprised if it stands in its own way. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. well, it still requires states to do. To uh, basically, it still requires states to enforce it. So you you can try to ship to Texas, but right now the legislature is not in session, and the the bureaucratic organization that issues the licenses and stuff is is not is under instructions not to issue licenses. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. Well, that is, and I guess speaking of trade. I've got another article that I think is kind of interesting, yeah. uh, and it is about. It's called. It's um, from. It's from Wine Searcher. I think. Uh, let's say. I think it's originally. The title is. I think it might have been posted actually directly to Wine Searcher. It's a little bit hard to tell, but it's huh. by uh, Blake Gray. The title is um, "Italian Wines Escape U.S. Tariff Hike." So. Uh, basically, the summary of the article, it, it's actually quite a long article. I'll put it in the show notes. But it, it's basically, it kind of goes over a lot of the tariffs that are going on from the Trump administration onto mm-hmm. European products. And then it's also saying, okay, this is interesting. There are no new tariffs going on Italian wines. Now, one thing that they pointed out, and you and I briefly talked about this before the show, is they say that Italy is the largest wine exporter to the U.S., which I was very surprised about, but uh, you said this is maybe not the case. This is not really that surprising that they export a lot of cheap wine. Well, at least that's like it, it's not that they export a lot of cheap wine. Maybe um, what I what I think I should say is, um, good lord, I'm I'm tongue tying myself. Okay. Give me a second. Well, you know, um, I after you mentioned that, one thing I thought about was maybe maybe the U.S. is a market for Italian wines, but Mm-hmm. Other places are market for French and other types of wines, but not Italian wines. Well, what so what I think I was thinking was that the Italian wines aren't seen the same way as French wines are. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I I think French wines carry a prestige more than the Italian wines do, because like when you think of French people, you think hoity toity, mm-hmm. and like, I don't mean this in, like, when you think of Italians, you think of American Italians, and then you think of Guidos. Like, oh, Jersey Shore guys. Like, in yeah, yeah, most yeah. people, like, that's not really how most Italians are. Right. That's really not how most Italian Americans are. Like, that's just this really bad, stupid stereotype. And half those people probably aren't actually Italian. Or, like, you know, they're a part Italian. Right. So... I think that's kind of the thing is like Italy is seen as this place where not as many people think about it. Plus with super Tuscans and things like that, you know, it's Mm -hmm. kind of that push and it's still, I think, you know, you look at Italy, it is a, it's the third or fourth like economic power in the, 
um, yeah. EU. You know what I mean? Well, like, it's it one step be, down from France. Yeah, and it used to be way bigger than it is now. Like they they have in the last you know thirty or forty years have really really been stepped down. But you know one of the things they really they, let themselves so they, basically. Go. <laughs> they they have. I mean. Uh, yeah. So we're actually we're seeing very large tariffs go on things like uh, single malt Scotch and Irish whiskeys, um, a lot of supermarket wine from France and from other regions. Uh, but for some reason, Italian wine, Champagne, and I don't know what this is, and I need to look it up. But they said Robert Parker style wine has been let off for good behavior. Um, huh. I don't know what the good behavior means, but what is it? Do you know what a Robert Parker style wine is? No, I was trying to look it up. Okay, <laughs> yeah, my guess is that's like some famous guy or something who has like some sort of rating system, but I have no idea. So, anyways, it says though um, uh, these are some odd uh, winners and losers from the latest U.S. Uh, U.S. broadside in its trade war with Europe. The U.S. government announced twenty five percent tariffs on many European products this week. In what it says is their response to a long-standing trade dispute over European subsidies to Airbus. I believe that's mm-hmm. come up before, where we've we've spoken about Airbus. Actually, it may have been last episode or the episode before where we talk about Airbus. It was, it was last episode, and you know what's funny? The RCAT wine I did last week, Yeah, we did on episode 54. Oh, interesting. Really? <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Man, we're we're gonna get to that point where we're just gonna be redoing wines, <laughs> and forget, we're already there. <laughs> I know, and we're forget forgetting that we did them. Uh, well, I've got a bunch of wines that I've never tried before, though I have multiple bottles of them, so I will probably be re- reviewing them multiple times. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So well, as, as they age, we should. That's true. Actually, yeah. That'll that'll be actually very interesting. Uh, but anyways, back to the article though. It says. Uh, so with the list of product, products, it, it seems weird because a lot of the products are from France, Germany, and Spain, and the UK, which is interesting that they're from the UK, but it may be because they're trying to put pressure on them while they're still part of the EU. Until Possibly. And then when they leave, because that's part of the agreements that I know that, that the Trump administration made with the UK is that when they leave the UK, a lot of trade, uh, a lot of tariffs and stuff are lifted. Hmm. Uh, and particularly on UK liquors. So mm-hmm. scotch, whiskey, and uh, different beers and different liquors from uh, the Repu- not the Republic of Ireland, but Ireland part of the UK. So The Northern Ireland. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I think that's very interesting. But yeah, Italian products in general were exempt. So products that include um, leather, that include olive oil, other types of clothing, and wine – for whatever reason, they decided that those are exempt. Does uh, Melania wear a lot of Prada? Uh, I would believe it. Yeah, prob- probably. Uh, so <laughs> that that is very very possible. I mean, I know that I know that the rumor is that the whole latest thing about the vape, uh, the vape questions and the vape bans and stuff like that from the Trump administration is because Barron was discovered smoking a vape, and uh, so they're very upset about that. And apparently, that's why they're pushing all this vape legislation but well, i didn't know the trump administration was punching pushing specifically oh yeah pushing a lot of it well yeah yeah they're, they're being really aggressive now about about vapes and like that apparently it's bad but they're citing it because like six people died but they're all they all died from like black market vape products they didn't they didn't die from like regular vape products so 
And actually, what I would say is the thing to be blamed is that THC is illegal in most places. So if you want if you want these people not to die, make THC legal, then people could have like above board THC products, and they wouldn't have to take the type that give them the lipid lung or whatever it's called, where like they're well, they're they're smoking oil, and the oil your your lungs don't have the ability to process the oil. So mm-hmm. you end up getting these lipids in your lungs, and then and it makes it so that you can't breathe. Well, most of the people who are vaping aren't currently vaping a THC product; they're vaping a a tobacco substitute. Yeah, most most of them are doing some sort of tobacco substitute with nicotine. The people who have died, though, are are all having cited um, having smoked a black market THC product. Oh, okay. I didn't realize it was a black market THC product. Yeah. Well, and, and actually, you, like, you and I may have smoked a black market THC product that is somehow related, but there was, but, <laughs> but there was no, well, or maybe there was, but we didn't know about it. There was no, like, vape pen product or anything like that. Like, we could have gotten in trouble, I guess. But, uh, you know, that, you know, back in the day when we were like, well, let's get this synthetic marijuana, which was this black magic stuff, which has a, similar molecule to THC that is just sort of sprayed on the spice. Uh, Mm -hmm. And there were people getting sick from that as well. They were having allergic reactions and things like that. And a lot of that pain and suffering and and like my distress from like my private experience or whatever with THC or with with fake THC. (laughs) Synthetic THC, yeah. Could have been all avoided if marijuana products were widely available and legal. Like Quite people possibly. are going to want to do what they're going to want to do, and this is sort, of, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, we could have, you know, we'll see. It, it, I guess it depends, but the thing is, like, I would have never purchased Black Magic if mm-hmm. if some sort of high quality marijuana was available. So, I, I guess my question would be then: Would you have consumed DMT if a black if THC had just been legal? Um. I don't know. That that's a good question because that was definitely a very formative experience. Yeah, because to me, like, I think one of the things that, like, I think we probably still might have done black magic because if it didn't have the same restrictions and other things like that, because like legal weed isn't generally never cheaper weed. That's true. So like, we were you know clearly unable to pursue certain aspects that we wanted because of inability to find product and stuff like that but like i don't remember specifically us getting that product because it was thc wasn't available to us you know what i mean like i i seem to remember us getting it because it was kind of like let's see what this is like but my memory well, might that's not very serve possible. me correctly maybe, maybe I, I yeah but it yeah, also well, might have been know, like might, it, might not either <laughs> yeah but you know we also might have been able to go and say like you know, by that same token, we might have been like, well, we just went ahead and got regular weed instead because it was, you know, so many forms were available or something like that. You, you know, I, I, as I recall, when we went to get, when we went to the, I think it was Aardvark Glass. Do they still exist? Yeah. You okay. actually went with Eric. Like, I didn't oh, actually okay. go in with this one. Yeah. Oh, well, shout out to Aardvark Glass if they're still around. Yeah. And they are. Oh, okay. All right. Well, shout out to them. We went into Ardvark Glass, and I got that like really cool pipe. Mm-hmm. That we had that glass pipe, and and actually Eric didn't he buy like a weird like a really whole weird bong system? Mm-hmm. Well, it's just a regular bong that just looked like a 
like a Bunsen flask or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, and what was weird about that is he didn't even smoke, so I'm not sure why he bought that. But, uh... <laughs> yeah. But, like... I think he planned to in the oh, future. Oh, okay, okay. So we, we, we went there, we bought that stuff, and then I, I remember while we were leaving, or before we checked out, I saw that they had all of these spices on the, like, the quote-unquote spice on the wrap. Mm-hmm. And I remember going, going like, oh... Uh, what is what's this? And the guy telling me he was like, "Oh, well, it's kind of like weed," and going like, "Oh, really?" And it was cheap, so I was like, "Okay, well, let me buy this one." And I bought that Black Magic, mm-hmm. and we had a very, very interesting experience with that. Yeah, uh, I remember you didn't care for it at all. No, no, I did not. And the first time, I actually thought it was great, and yeah. we, I, I had a really good time. Although Eric did the that like flash of his hand or whatever in your face which made it like very unpleasant for you but <laughs> yeah i i had a great time and then i remember though the second time i did it i was i was very tired and i mm-hmm. was having for some reason a hard time sleeping so i smoked it and it just like freaked me out yeah and, and then you were up for like 24 hours yeah, yeah yeah and i ended up going to work the next day and like just like not feeling good at all just like totally freaking out and, like, the only thing that allowed me to sleep was, like, I had to go in the shower, turn the shower on so that I wouldn't go into hyperspace and, like, sleep in the shower with the shower. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it was, like, a whole terrible experience. But it was – it was and that was the thing, though, about it was that it was so inconsistent. It was, like, that first time you and I did it, it was very intense. And then, mm-hmm. like, I remember I smoked it again with, I think, London and Seth, and it was nothing. Mm-hmm. And then the third time I smoked it because I was like, well, maybe it'll make me tired or whatever and I'll just be able to fall asleep. And it was like the worst, most, most horrific experience I'd ever had. <laughs> yeah. Like, I still don't think you've had an experience as bad as that. Mm-mm. No, because like, like DMT, I thought was incredibly enjoyable for all the times that I did it. It was, I mean, it was very, very intense, but it was a completely different thing. Mm-hmm. It was like, the pro- I think the problem with with that experience with the black magic was that it was like I was like halfway between hyperspace and like the real world, and mm-hmm. like and that made the hyperspace world terrifying. Whereas with yeah. with DMT, like you're cut off from this world and you're just like you're in hyperspace, and and so like <laughs> by that time you're just like okay, well this is what it is, and you're in another world. And well, and then for you. and then although. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, exactly for me. But, like, perceptually, it's difficult to tell how long you're there. But the when you're there, you don't care. So, mm-hmm. like, because, like, I, I've described this before. I don't know if I've described it on the show or whatever. Is that, like, for me, when I, when I smoked a lot of that DMT, was it separates, like, you have, like, a agreeable side of you, a disagreeable side of you, and then your true self is how I've always described it. Mm-hmm. And your true self is going into the DMT world while your agreeable and disagreeable self are arguing. So, yeah. like, your disagreeable self is like, you might be dead. And your agreeable self is like, that's eh, fine. It only is going to last five minutes at most. And your disagreeable mm-hmm. is like, yeah, but this may have been the biggest mistake of your life and you may not wake up. And the other one's like, well, if he wakes, if he doesn't wake up, that's fine. This is pretty pleasant. And, like, they're, like, they're, they're like arguing or whatever, but that's left behind you. And then you're like your true self or whatever, your distilled self is now going through hyperspace. And like those, those worries are gone. 
Exactly. So it's like yeah, it's a very different experience. Yeah. I don't know how I don't know how we got on this topic from <laughs> Italian wine. Yeah. And neither do I, but that that's the thing is like yeah, we were we were talking about um Trump the Trump administration coming down on vape because they think Barron supposedly was vaping or something like that, which I find impossible oh, to right, believe yeah. with all the secret well, service yeah, around. I don't it. know. That's true, yeah. Well we'll we'll see what it that's that's the rumor that's going around. I think it's one of the QAnon rumors. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which I enjoy very much. Uh but kind of going back to the article. Uh so anyway, so Italian wines have escaped this. I actually found this very surprising, but I went ahead and, and looked through my wine stock and I do actually have quite a few Italian wines. I wouldn't say it's disproportionately representative. Um, mm-hmm. But it's definitely more than the French wines I have in my wine stock, huh. and um, I have a lot of I have a lot of Tuscans. I have a lot of biodynamic wines out of Italy. Mm-hmm. I have one, two, three, four. I have four biodynamic wines out of Italy, and I have two Tuscans, and I have one Cabernet Sauvignon that I haven't tried yet. That's that's Italy Italian. I don't know. I actually on the shelf right now. I have, I have California, Texas, Spanish, Texas, California, Italian, 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 Spanish, Texas, Texas, Chilean, Chilean, California, California, Oregon, Oregon, Moldova, mm. Texas, 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 California, 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 California. So I've got, and I guess I have I have a couple more. I think those are Californians up there. I don't know. They're in the other section of my wine stuff, so I can't really see what they are. But yeah, mm-hmm. so like with the wines I have, I do actually have quite a few Italians. Yeah. And I have no Italians as really? far as I know. Okay. Yeah, do, you have, got, do you have any French? Well, I have the French I'm drinking. Okay. Okay. So I have two Texas, two mm-hmm. Virginian. A French and an Australian. Mm. So I mean, I guess that makes sense, though that that they would be like a number one trade, like a number one trader. I'm, I'm, let's go ahead and I may cut this part out of the show, but I kind of am interested in this. I'm, I want to go through my last bottle of wines that are coming mm-hmm. and just figure out how many of these are, uh, how many of these are Italian, or if I well, if well, any. While he looks, um, you can follow us, Tasting Anarchy on Gmail, or follow us at tastinganarchy.com. Uh, you can email us at tastinganarchy at gmail.com. You can follow Jacob's hijinks on Twitter at tastinganarchy on Twitter. Um, if you like Texas and you want to come to Texas, you want to hang out with us in Texas, 23rd to the 26th of 2020, we will be doing the second annual Childerberg, uh, which is our Liberty Lovers event in South Texas. Think uh, Pork Fest without the uh, infrastructure and action, um, or the action that they do. You're going to have much more Texas-based action. Nikki P from Sounds Like uh, Liberty is going to be there. Plus, I, I think he's got like 30 podcasts now. I think he's the most prolific <laughs> he is. non-Tom Woods uh, libertarian podcaster that is not Scott Horton, since Scott Horton is just like... What on episode fifty trillion or oh, something yeah, like that? Something ungodly. Um, yeah, so you know, Nikki P will be there. There are going to be hopefully other special guests. We're bookending the 
uh, Libertarian National Convention. So, you know, if you're attending the Libertarian National Convention, come by and see us. We're going to be in some park that I can never remember the name of that Jacob will tell us in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, then on Childerberg.com, you can get shirts. So if you want to wear Childerberg merch, if you want to help support it, you can't attend, you know, something like that. Uh, buy a shirt. We'll get it shipped out to you. Um, there's some pretty cool colors. We'll have additional designs coming. Our goal, at least the goal that I've set for Jacob that he uh, probably agrees with, is to be able to wear a chill- different Childerberg shirt including the wine bank exclusive Childerberg one shirt um, the entire time. So I don't have to wear any normal people clothes. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. I, I, I support that. I also have not taken the shirts off of the website yet. I kind of figured I probably should have taken them off in September. We still have like a handful left until we're, we've reached a hundred. So I just kind of figured I'll, I'll leave it at a hundred and take it down mm-hmm. as soon as we reach that. I also have another design that is pending, um, but it's going to be for VIP members only. So I'm going to put a VIP package together, and it's going to have some really cool products, and um, so that's something that you guys can, can look forward to. Uh, yeah. And yeah. you can find all of that information on Childerberg, uh, the website. Also, if you go to uh, Childerberg, you can sign up for the newsletter. I wrote the majority of the next newsletter. That's right. And I am doing this as a way to push Jacob to actually send it out since I drunkenly wrote it a couple weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, hold on. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So I'm on, on the wine. So the first one. First one that I have coming, California. Second one I have coming, France. Third mm-hmm. one, California. Fourth one. I don't want to go through all of these, actually. I just realized this is incredibly boring. Fourth one, yeah, South I Africa. Say, <laughs> I was going to say, because you have 130. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's very boring. But just kind of scrolling through the first couple, I don't actually see any Italians. Uh, this one might be. Oh, yeah, I have a Barolo. Fifth one, Barolo. So, yeah, I mean, I guess so, yeah. I I guess, yeah, I guess there is a lot. Because actually, I have a Barolo here. I have have a Toscana as the one after that. Uh, A Barbaresco after that. So, man, I guess I'm totally wrong. I didn't realize how much Italian wines I get. So, yeah, so I guess guess that makes sense that Italian wines would be pretty big. Uh, So... Yeah, so kind of like, you know, let's let's sort of circle back around to the article is that they're basically they're saying that like this is really interesting that that Trump has sort of skipped well, this is the thing about a lot of the articles that come out about the Trump administration. They always attribute everything to Trump. I I think this started with the Obama administration or the it, it, Bush it, Bush it, Jr. administration. It it definitely did because it talks about it going back to 2004. So uh, this has been a, a trade dispute between the U.S. and the EU for a long time because the EU is heavily subsidizing Airbus. And so America has been saying the entire time, like, well, look, if you're subsidizing Airbus, d- never mind the fact that we subsidize Boeing. But mm-hmm. uh, if And you're General subs- Dynamics, yeah. Arthur Grunham. Exactly. Yeah. All of these guys, they're like, well, if you're subsidizing them – we're going to go ahead and subsidize or we're going to go ahead and put tariffs on you or whatever. So yeah. But whenever they sort of write these articles, they always sort of indicate that it's a Trump administration in general. I wouldn't say I 
doubt it, but I honestly I don't think that Trump has that much to do with specifics. I think he kind of just says in general what he wants to do, and then people that are working under him figure it out. Yeah, I think I think the Trump administration probably puts a lot of like Trump himself, I'm sure, is like, hey, are we putting tariffs on these people? Mm. You know what I mean? Like something sets him off and like, you know, he tries to go to England and everybody loses their mind and blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, okay, well, you know, throw the carrot out there for him. If you guys uh, leave, the EU will will drop all trade yeah, barriers or something. You know, like I, well, I don't and, think and he's – And that's, that's actually – uh, in the most recent episode of Contra Krugman, they talk a little bit about this. is This is not a new tactic. Like the Obama administration. The one with Brian McKenna? Yeah, yeah. McClanahan? Yeah, with Brian Yeah, McKenna. that was a great one. It was a really good episode. Like they talk about that or whatever where like the Obama administration and the, and the Bush administration before that have directly told other countries, if you want to talk to us, you got to pay. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of that same thing is where they say like basically you want to, you want to do stuff with us? You gotta pay, and they and they pay through. Any of you guys who are not really on the libertarian bandwagon, like Mason and me, you're you're gonna you're gonna be getting a lot of like anti-Trump stuff. And believe me, Mason and I are quite anti-Trump, and but we're anti-government in general. So, but we don't really see the Trump administration as that much different than any other administration, and. A lot of that goes into this type of thing where the article, which I actually think is a very good article by uh, Blake Gray, but the kind of overtone I feel is very anti-Trump and it and it puts me in this position that I don't really like where I'm kind of like, I feel like I have to defend Trump because every other president before him has done the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to defend him because they're all idiots. <laughs> like they all do stupid stuff you know what the trade agreement between all countries in the u.s should be is we're not going to put tariffs on you that's it that's that that should be the trade agreement we allow free trade you put tariffs on us okay that's a that's that's hurting your own people yeah it might hurt our people a little bit too but the thing is, is that that will reorganize the economy in a different way and it'll also make your country poorer so now if you guys want to learn a lot more about that, check out Bob Murphy on the Bob Murphy Show or, or Bob Murphy on uh, Contra Krugman. He talks a lot about this is that the best policy when encountering tariffs from other countries is lower taxes, lower tariffs. And exactly. That, that's, like, it's going to be better for everybody. Yeah, and, that, and that's the thing is like – we're, you're not going to get ahead doing this. You're not suddenly going to beat them into submission. You're you're only proving their point, which they, you know, so you always, everybody in America always seems to think like, oh, there's all this blah, 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 like tension between the political parties. Mm-hmm. You guys have no idea, apparently, what European political parties are like. Like the stuff that people say in the House of Commons to each other it's in hilarious. the UK alone yeah. is just worth gold. Yeah, you know, it, and it's great to watch it because they're so polite about it. Because mm-hmm. they're like, respectfully, the Labour Party minister declares that the Conservative Party minister is a jackass. <laughs> With all respect. 
do. Yeah, and, exactly. And like you're like, okay, so how's that any different? But you know, we get we get similar things here. Is like uh, like Nancy Pelosi right now. You know, we're gonna go ahead and date this episode. Is that right now? There's like impeachment proceedings. Or ex- no, it's, it's hearings. A, yeah, hear, on hearings. Possibly. Right, right. So the way it is is they've not actually declared impeachment yet, so they don't. They have no ability to subpoena, but they can call the request to talk to those people as subpoenas. So when those people say no, I have no, I have no reason to go and like fulfill this, they, um. They basically are like, oh, well, they denied a subpoena because it's called a subpoena even though it's not a legally binding subpoena. Mm-hmm. So, and even then, like, Congress's subpoenas aren't really that legally binding right, most right. of the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you can – I guess you could be held in contempt, but I don't think that actually carries any sort of weight. So – Yeah, I don't think so either. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, 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 inter- it's an interesting case, and this sort of ter- ties into a lot of the stuff. I, I really hate going into this and, like, defending Trump or whatever because – I don't want tariffs on Germany. I don't want tariffs on France. That's all very dumb. If he mm-hmm. if he really really wanted to screw them, he would just drop all trade barriers to them. Yeah, and that would just it would bleed them dry. They'd have to drop the trade barriers to us because they'd just be poorer. So, anyways, I mean, like, yeah, if he really wanted to screw them, doing that it's just kind of showing that, like, hey, uh, yeah, you guys aren't you guys aren't anything. Like, mm. oh, like, step up your game. Like, it, it's just, it'd be so easy for his administration to do. Yeah, it would be. All right. Uh, that's all I have for that article. You want to talk about anything else? No, I think that's that's it for us tonight. All right. Well, uh, this was a very light episode, but I think it was a good episode. Yeah. Uh, we got Just out about an hour. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, from uh, from us at Tasty Anarchy, stay free. Stay free. down windows and turn down doors. Yeah. Drinking Afghans and calling for more. Drinking wines, go to you to drink wine. Wines, go to you to drink wine. Wines, go to you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peterstown, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine, for the you to drink wine. Wine, for the you to drink wine. Wine, for the you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Horton sherry. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilfie at Willis Den. He wasn't selling but American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine, pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel. Have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Somebody's fifth and somebody's fourth. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine, pass that.